It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Now this week we're heading to Pakistan, to the home of K2, known as the Savage Mountain to the climbers who have dared to try to reach its peak. Because two years ago we investigated an expedition to K2's peak in winter that ended in tragedy. And it was a story that laid bare the forces of commerce and competition that kick into gear above 8,000 metres. And so this year we returned to K2 as again a mountaineering season that was fraught with tension and controversy unfolded. And our reporter Claudia Williams has been speaking to people in the world of mountaineering about a new wave of record breakers who have been taking on the world's highest peaks. Because in July, hundreds of climbers, many of them set on breaking all kinds of records, were anxiously waiting for their chance to summit K2. Because as the sport runs out of firsts, the records have become harder to get, and they're now often focused on speed and scale. And as the mountains also become more accessible to the people who can pay to go up them, more and more people are giving these deadly climbs a go. And Claudia focused on a record attempt by a woman called Kristin Harilla, a Norwegian climber who was aiming to be the fastest person to summit all of the world's 8,000-metre mountains in under six months. But just as we were preparing to publish this episode, and in a reminder of just how deadly and how fast-moving the sport of high mountaineering can be, many of the people that Claudia interviewed were involved in an avalanche in Tibet. At the time of recording this, three climbers have been confirmed dead, including Tenjin Sherpa Lama, Kristen Harilla's climbing partner for her world record attempt, and Mingmar G. Sherpa, who features in this episode, you'll hear his voice, who was seriously injured in the rescue mission in Tibet. And this event has left the world of mountaineering reeling once again. But I'm going to hand over to Claudia to tell the story of what happened in Pakistan this summer. Lucas Vole is in the clouds. 8,000 metres up in the sky, he's at nearly the same altitude as a commercial aeroplane, just a final push away from the summit of one of the highest mountains in the world. From the beginning, I'm climbing alone. He's on Broad Peak, a rocky, icy monster on the border between Pakistan and China. My brother and my dad are supporting from base camp and also giving me like important information. 
Lucas is climbing without oxygen. He slowly makes his way through the snow. The summit is in sight. I reached 8,000 meters for the first time in my life. I was pretty happy, feeling great. It's taken Lucas months of planning back home in Austria and weeks of trekking in Pakistan to get to this point. Watching videos of him climbing, it's hard not to catch your breath. The mountain ridge he's walking along is so thin, it's like a tightrope in the sky. An almost sheer drop either side of him. Jagged peaks ahead, stretching into the distance until they're lost to the clouds. Conditions are harsh. The air is thin. It's well below freezing. This is off 7,900. Ten people have died on Broad Peak in the past ten years. But Lucas is close to achieving a lifelong ambition. When he reaches the summit, he's going to jump off and paraglide back down to base camp. Only suddenly, Lucas realises that he's no longer so alone. I saw this man lying in the snow. The man is in a really bad way. It was about 60 kilometres wind. He was lying on the ground, so I couldn't see his face. As I was walking by, I could see his eyes and he had like an evil look. And he was constantly throwing up and he was removing his gloves, so um, they were black and frozen. He's too unwell to tell Lucas his name or why he's alone in the snow. Lucas looks up and briefly glimpses a group of climbers further up the mountain. Even with like screaming, it was still like too far away. And they were pretty high up on, and then disappearing behind this, this little summit. So I saw them shortly. He springs into action. He calls his brother, Vincent, who's waiting for him back at base camp. Let me talk to the Lela guy too. Oh, what the fuck? iPhone needs to cool down before you can use it. Hi. Hello. Hey, was verstehst du? Hi. Ja, was verstehst du? Ah, ich verstehe Bruchstücke und Worte, aber die machen mir keinen zusammenhängenden Sinn. Ja, ich habe nur verstanden, dass er auf er ist auf 8000 Metern und ein Sherpa braucht Hilfe. The man they find out later is a 21-year-old called Murtaza Sadpara. He's a high-altitude porter a Pakistani climber hired to help carry oxygen and rope up the mountain. From base camp, Vincent tries to get a message to the teams nearby to Lucas, but nobody seems willing to help. They had, like, no interest, so I knew right now I'm the only one who can help, and there's, like, so many indicators showing that this man should immediately leave this mountain. And so Lucas has a choice. Does he push on and leave Murtaza alone? Or does he give up his dream of summiting Broad Peak to save a man's life? And I immediately started dragging him down, pushing. Back at base camp, Vincent, Lucas's brother, says he gets into a heated argument with the Pakistani company that hired Murtaza. It's over money. They don't want to pay for any costs related to a rescue attempt. And Lucas is struggling. After dragging Murtaza 200 metres down the mountain... He gets lucky. He bumps into an American climber who agrees to help him. But conditions are getting worse. 
we got into a whiteout. So there was like fog and clouds moving in, into the snow slopes. So all the fixed ropes were snowed in. So we had a hard time finding the path and then we got lost. Vincent manages to persuade a mountain guide from one of the bigger commercial companies to go out and look for Lucas. It takes hours, but he manages to find them. He was screaming for us and at one point like we heard him screaming. So he found us. When they all arrive safely back at Camp 3, everything is a blur. Lucas collapses into his tent. He wakes up hours later, boots still on, the tent door wide open. Murtaza Sadpara has frostbite. He loses six fingers. But he survives. Lucas. Well, after two weeks of rest, Lucas heads back up into the clouds. Just after midnight on the 27th of July, 2023, he sets off once more for the Broad Peak Summit. And once again, he spots something. Only this time, it's not on Broad Peak. It's in the distance, far across the mountain range on K2, the world's second highest and most dangerous mountain. From Broad Peak, you have a great view of K2. And then during the night, you see all those headlamps moving up and there were many climbers on that day. So you could see a snake of lights moving up the mountain. And then all of a sudden, it got stuck. Like nobody was moving for half an hour. And then nobody was moving like for an hour. I think something something happened on K2. Lucas was right. Something had happened on K2. Without knowing, he was watching a story unfold that would travel around the world. I'm Claudia Williams, and this week on the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, we're following those lights in the dark, twisting their way up into the sky on K2, the Savage Mountain. It was not about mountains. It was not about an accident. It was about life itself and the harsh differences we see in today's world. Uh, these are Alaska Husky. So it's the, they are like almost 40 kilo and do this uh, dog sledding. Okay, wow. So they are really, really nice and <laughs> super strong. <laughs> When Kristin Hurula first joins our interview, she's in a car, driving through the isolated, winding lanes near her home in the Norwegian countryside, her sled dogs panting over her shoulder. So my name is Kristin Hurula. I'm from Norway. I'm 37 years old and I have been climbing mountains. Kristin Hurula is a former cross-country skier. She's still considered a novice climber by experienced mountaineers. She summited her first 8,000-metre mountain, Everest, in May 2021. She climbed her second straight after, summiting both in under 12 hours and smashing the women's world record. That wasn't enough. In 2022, she set out to break the world speed record for climbing all 14 of the 8,000-metre mountains. Of course, I wanted to do it in less than six months. That was, that was the plan. She was aiming to beat the record set by Nims Perger. He's a Nepalese climber who, in 2019, 
became the fastest person to summit all 14 mountains using supplemental oxygen in six months and six days. He beat the previous record by more than seven years. Nims Perger filmed the project for a wildly successful Netflix documentary. When you are in the mountains... If you give up, you die. There are only 14 mountains in the world higher than 8,000 metres. He's now a celebrity in his own right. A Red Bull-sponsored athlete with 2 million followers on Instagram. There are more eyeballs on him and the world of high-octane mountaineering he represents than ever before. So when Kristin Harriler announced she was coming for his record just three years after he set it, people paid attention. And Kristin Harriler went all in. So I sold my apartment and and everything I had and left in 2022, yeah. She climbed using the same controversial speed-based style popularised by Nims Perger, using supplemental oxygen, helicopters and a team of Sherpas. But her original 2022 attempt ended in disappointment. After 12 successful speedy climbs, Kristin Harriler and her team were denied permits to climb the final two mountains they couldn't finish in time. So she started again from scratch. This year, together with a new climbing partner, a Nepalese professional called Tenjin Sherpalama, and a new team, Kristin Harriler climbed 13 of the world's 14 highest mountains in just under three months. They were comfortably on course to beat Nims Perger's record. And then it was the five in Pakistan left, and then it was possible in three months and one day. The final mountain was K2, the culmination of nearly two years of climbing and planning. So in total over these two years, I have probably spent 1.5 million US dollar. So it's very, very expensive to do all and especially in such a short time. And I, I think like finding enough money, it's probably the hardest part, actually. It's uh, and still I'm coming home with uh, <laughs> a big amount of money that I owe people. So it's, it's not easy to, to find enough money to do this. It's not easy, but there is money in the mountains and more people than ever are looking for it. 2022 was the year that K2 changed. A record-breaking 200 people summited, a mixture of self-funded and sponsored, amateur and professional, Three died while trying. Everyone expected this year to be even busier. All summer, while Kristin Harriler was ticking off other mountains, crowds were gathering on K2. Hundreds of climbers, guides, porters, expedition leaders, companies and hopeful record breakers, all waiting for their chance to reach the peak. But the six-week season wasn't going to plan. Angela Benavides is a reporter who has specialised in high-altitude mountaineering for 20 years. The weather is never very stable on the high mountains, but this year in particular was really bad, especially on K2. There were clouds and snow and heavy snow falling, wrapping the mountain for weeks. And that led to a quite tense situation in base camp. Because the Savage Mountain, as K2 is known, wasn't yet open for business. 
Normally, a group of skilled Sherpas and guides from different expedition companies clear a route up K2, fixing ropes that climbers can follow to reach the summit. By the last week of July this year, the rope-fixing team still hadn't finished the route. It wasn't just the bad weather. It's a difficult, risky job, and one expedition leader told me it felt like a game of chicken between the largest companies on the mountain, over who would take responsibility. We got to July 26, and no one had even attempted to summit K2. Hundreds of climbers who had been waiting for weeks on end were running out of time. When the helicopter carrying Kristin Harriller and her team, her climbing partner Lama, four Sherpas, her cameraman, landed at base camp, the sense of urgency only increased. At the end of the season is the end of July, right? So there was one chance, no time, and conditions were far from ideal. There's a brief window of good weather before another storm is forecast to roll in. There's one chance to climb, and the expedition companies grab it. On the morning of the 26th of July, the rope-fixing team, now bolstered with extra Sherpas from Kristin Harriller, start their push for the summit. As day turns to night, one by one, around 150 climbers follow them up the mountain. Kristin Harriller and her team are among the last to leave. By this point, they're a well-oiled machine. We had very good conditions up to Camp 4. We could like easily walk in the, in the snow, even if it was like a lot of snow. But it was good trails because of all the people going in front. And we were, we were walking pretty fast. So we were passing people uh, all the way up to Camp 4. And only two and a half hours, we reached Camp 4. They make good progress. But the worst K2 has to offer is yet to come. It's called the bottleneck. A narrow passage 400 metres below the summit. Climbers inch their way along an icy corridor, cutting across the mountain in single file. On one side, an almost sheer drop. On the other, an overhanging serac, a giant wall of ice the size of a tower block, looming ominously, ready to fall at any moment. And in the past, it has. I mean, it was dark and the lights were at bottleneck was not moving. So it went really slowly because we don't want to catch up with the rope fixing. They, they, we need to give them space to do their job. This is Ellen. That's not her real name. She's worried about pushback on social media. Ellen and her team are some of the first to leave base camp. They're near the front of the queue on the mountain. Kristen's team are climbing fast, passing other climbers until she's just behind Ellen. We were trying to pass the six people that we have in front of us, me and Lama, around two o'clock. And we, we couldn't pass the six people. It was like too late before uh, the Boston Lack. And the uh, trail there this year were very small and you felt that the, all this new snow were not like stable. The trail is even more difficult than normal. When you pass the bottleneck, normally people try to pass as fast as possible. Instead, this year... 8,000 metres up towards the narrow precipice, the mountain comes to a halt. So I saw this person hanging upside down there and his belly was out. Ellen is near the front of the queue of climbers. Because I didn't know who this person is. So at that point, I I stopped moving 
I stand on the path. I mean, I mean, if you've seen the path, you would know like it was only like a one feet path. In the dark, Ellen and her guide try to work out what's happened. The person who's fallen has dislodged the rope they're using to climb. It means that Ellen and her fellow climbers are no longer safely attached to the mountain. One of the guides nearby tries to go ahead and help. He slips. He's okay, he writes himself, but everyone is terrified. And then Christine's team came. We didn't know if it was a man or a woman or porter or Sherpa or climber. We understood that this person needed help and that like we saw that it was no down suit, no gloves, no oxygen. And we saw that the ropes were kind of twisted around his legs or something. We saw that there was something weird about his harness and how the ropes were hanging around him. That man we now know is Mohammed Hassan, a 27-year-old Pakistani high-altitude porter, a father of three young children working for the first time above base camp. He was hired by a Pakistani logistics company called Leila Peak Expeditions. They, in turn, were contracted by a Russian company called Seven Summits Club. They're an established company working with wealthy Russian clients. But this was their first K2 expedition. On the mountain, Mohammed Hassan worked for the Russian team. He stayed in their camp. On the 26th of July, Mohammed Hassan sets off for the summit of K2 with his cousin, another porter called Hassan Shigri. And this is where memories slide and facts become hard to hold on to. At 8,000 metres, where the air is thin, the darkness overwhelming, minutes seem like hours and metres like miles. Mohammed Hassan and Hassan Shigri are just behind the rope-fixing team, carrying rope at the bottleneck. At some point between 11pm and 2am, Mohammed Hassan slips. He falls roughly six metres down the almost vertical side of the mountain. He tries to pull himself back up, but he's already exhausted. His oxygen mask tumbles into the dark. He keeps slipping. Some of the rope-fixing team are nearby, Two or three of them try to help, but they don't have the right equipment. They say there is nothing they can do and leave to join the rest of the team finishing the route to the summit. Mohammed Hassan is left hanging, his cousin watching helplessly on the most dangerous stretch of the mountain. They do not have a radio. It's believed that just after 2am, the first of the climbers reaches the point where Mohammed Hassan is hanging. Kristin Harriler and her team soon catch up. And I felt that people from behind were pushing uh, because they didn't see what happened. It's dark and it, we are just like around little ice corners, so it wasn't easy for the people behind to see what happened. And uh, I think the people in front of us, they were also afraid of, uh, like, it will collapse even more. And if more people in, is hanging in the rope, there is, at some point, it's going to come down. Kristin Harriler, her climbing partner Lama, and Gabriel, her cameraman, carefully climb around the small group of people ahead of them. It's a dangerous manoeuvre in this location. They're now directly behind Mohammed Hassan. They'll need to create a pulley system to get him onto the path, but it's dark, and the fixed rope keeping them safe is still dislodged. Kristen Harriler, Lama and Gabriel try to anchor themselves to the mountain so that they can pull Mohammed Hassan to safety. Gabriel goes out to Hassan and 
try to turn him around, put on his oxygen because he didn't have oxygen. So he gives him his oxygen and he comes back and we get the rope from someone behind. Further down the mountain, it's chaos. K2 has come to a halt and nobody knows why. Up to 150 climbers are waiting toe-to-toe in the dark, their head torches expectantly trained upwards. It's this winding snake of lights that Lucas Verle, the Austrian climber, sees from across the mountain range. And I shouted, actually, I was like, can we move back a little bit so I can go to a safe anchor and nobody would move? So, And then suddenly the other side, there was an avalanche. There are reports of multiple avalanches that night on K2. One misses the crowd by metres. Some climbers are buried up to their thighs in snow. Many decide to turn back. They don't want to be caught in a traffic jam here. The rest are determined to push on. It's their one shot. The problem is Mohammed Hassan is still in the way. But why was Mohammed Hassan up there, so close to the summit in the first place? Multiple people I've spoken to who were on the mountain say there was a feeling among some of the fixing team that he wasn't experienced enough to keep up with them, that he was in over his head. He didn't have good enough clothing to be anywhere near that high up. He should never have been left up there. So, um, yeah. Luis Soriano, a senior guide working for the Russian team, said Mohammed Hassan was told to stop climbing before the summit at Camp 3. A senior high-altitude porter close to the situation disputed that. He said that while the plan might have changed later without his knowledge, Mohamed Hassan was originally assigned to stay with the rope-fixing team right to the top. But most people I've spoken to agree on one thing. Mohamed Hassan wanted to climb to the summit. His cousin Hassan Shigri says Mohamed Hassan was proud of how well he'd been climbing. Wilhelm Steindl was on K2 that night making a documentary for Austrian TV. He went to visit Mohammed Hassan's family after his death. The family told Wilhelm Steindl that Mohammed Hassan was willing to take on such risky work to earn more money. Making it to the top of an 8,000er can mean better opportunities for porters in the future, better pay the next year. Some climbers told me that ultimately, everyone who goes up that high knows the risk they're taking. You shouldn't climb if you're not okay with it. But a lot of those people are clients who have paid for the privilege. They've flown around the world to get there, thought about it. Mohammed Hassan, like Murtaza Sadpara, who collapsed on Broadpeak, was at work. No sponsors or big group of supporters back home watching their progress on an app. Nobody, really, who seems to have felt like it was their responsibility to check they made it down okay. And that meant they were in a deadly position as soon as something went wrong. It's just after 3am on the bottleneck when an avalanche hits the mountain. We are not um, hurt by the avalanche at all. But we hear on the radio that the fixing team have problems. So we decide to speak up. Gabriel stays. Another Sherpa from 8K comes to help. And household friends continue also to help. Concerned about the rope fixing team, Kristin Harilla and Tenjin Sherpa Lama 
make the decision to restart their summit climb. Gabriel, the cameraman, stays with Mohammed Hassan. And me and Lama goes up uh, and we find a fixing team just around the corner. They are not far away. At this point, Mohammed Hassan is still hanging below the path. Gabriel, Mohammed's cousin and another Sherpa work to pull him back up. But the queue is getting restless. And somebody behind me was shouting, go, go, go. So, yeah, I mean, for me at that time, I didn't have any choice, right? We had to move on. So we had to, we had to basically get away from that section. Um, so we went ahead. With the rescue attempt ongoing, several climbers decide to continue their summit. Later, in a statement to Pakistani authorities, Gabriel says that some climbers push past him while he's working, asking him to move out of the way. Eventually, Mohammed Hassan is pulled back on the path, exposed to the elements with suspected hypothermia and broken legs from the fall. He is in grave danger, but he is alive. For Angela Benavides, that's what matters. One of the things I've learned through my journalistic career is that miracles happen on the mountains. The path he's lying on is less than a metre wide. The snow is slippery. As the sun rises, climbers continue their march upwards into the sky. One by one, they step over Mohammed Hassan. Gabriel is forced to leave. He's run out of oxygen and the spares are ahead with his team. He has no choice but to continue climbing. Mohammed Hassan's cousin stays with him, trying to keep him warm. He says he asks everyone who passes for help, but nobody even offers them spare oxygen. By this point, Kristen Harriller is nearing the summit with her team. We have been in front all the way. And very deep snow, so it took, like, normally maybe it would have taken, like, one hour last year. It took us maybe four or five hours this year because of the deep snow. At 10.45am, they make it. So we reached the summit and I call home and to my team and I tell tell them about what happened and and uh, my team home said that everyone is okay and they had been talking with seven summit and we only have radio contact inside our team and they had been checking after I brought that we had problem they had been checking with the team that we were okay and that everyone in our team were okay so they tell me everyone is okay I was like okay good then then they managed to to save him. And Gabriel comes up because he, after two and a half hours, he had to leave because he was almost out of oxygen and his extra oxygen bottle were in front with the Sherpa that we had sent in front to help with the fixing team. I meet him on the summit and I asked, like, did you manage to get him all up on the on the trail? And he said, yes. And I asked, is he alive? And he said, yes, he's alive. But he's in very, very bad uh, condition, very bad shape. Then we turn around and go down, and of course we see him uh, that he is dead in in the bottleneck. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hassan Shigri says that Mohammed Hassan dies between 10 and 11 in the morning of the 27th of July. That same day, around 70 people reached the summit of K2. Kristen Harriller breaks Nims Purge's record, the world record. It's a muted end to a two-year project. Of course, very, very sad to to end everything in that way. And uh, but, uh, but everyone was uh, affected by what happened up there. And it's, of course, it's different when we are, like we see dead people on the mountain, but it's very different when we are, when we are there, when it happens. A friend of mine, he had some other people that, uh, were in base camp that didn't know me so well, but uh, they had they know they knew her, so they came to her and asked, uh, "What is wrong with Kristen? Why isn't she happy? Why isn't she celebrating?" Uh, but none of us felt like it was very happy. Some of the climbers who summit hold the traditional parties. There are cakes and fireworks at base camp, but the mood is tetchy, alive with speculation. Angela Benavides is the first to report Mohammed Hassan's death. I was trying to check around and try to find out what happened. The rumours swirled at that moment. There were rumours about more than one people dying. Slowly, more details surface. Wilhelm Steindl and the Austrian team making a documentary look at drone footage they have from their summit attempt. The videos show an endless line of people crawling upwards towards the summit. It couldn't be more different to the videos of Lucas Verle, the Austrian climber, alone in the elements on Broad Peak. It's this footage that reveals to the rest of the world just how many people walked over Mohammed Hassan while he was still alive. It is hard to reconcile that desperate video with the stories of K2 plastered all over social media by mountaineering companies and their wealthy clients. There is absolutely no mention of Mohammed Hassan on the Seven Summit Club website. The team who climbed with him shared a camp with him. In blog posts, they celebrate a 100% success rate on K2. They share videos of clients showing off their medals. All of them will have walked past Mohammed Hassan, alive or dead, on their way to the summit. Happy victory, 
the website says. Not to be outdone, Seven Summit Treks, the expedition company Kristin Harriller used, publishes similar posts celebrating their success. So do 8K Expeditions and other companies. These achievements light up social media. There is no mention of Mohammed Hassan. Then the videos start coming out. In one shared by 8K Expeditions on Instagram, you can see Kaima struggling over Mohammed Hassan's body. It's disturbing and it is totally bizarre. The caption makes no mention of what's happening as the camera pans from Mohammed Hassan to the glorious sunrise and the queue below. And while some clients who summit do mention Mohammed Hassan, many do not, including Kristin Harriller. You didn't mention what happened to Mohammed Hassan in public until mm. much later on, I believe not until the 10th of August, which is almost mm. a week after he died and, and mm. quite a long time after his death was confirmed in the press. Um, mm. how, why did it take you that long to publicly acknowledge what had happened? First, uh, he's not in our team and I am not medium for bringing out those news to media or social media at all. It's not my responsibility. I don't want to be uh, a person or a platform that brings uh, out those information. It's uh, the company or the family that is the right persons to do that. If he was in our team, we would have coordinated the information with his family, first of all, and the company and the other in the team. But he wasn't in our team. It's not my job or not the right either that I am going to be uh, coming out with public information about a death in uh, another team and really we don't think picture of an injured person or a rescue or a dying or a dead person has nothing out to do in social media or in media but do you understand without having to name him without having to give any of the details and certainly not including photos or pictures Mm. You posted a reel from the top, an Instagram reel mm. from the top of the summit. It's on the 3rd or 4th of August saying we did mm. it. This is amazing. There's no mention yeah. or acknowledgement in that post that anything has happened in the hours before that. And actually that in that the hours surrounding that video being taken, your cameraman has mm. as tried to save the life of a dying man. And there is still at that point a man who is dead or dying mm. on the mountain. Do you understand why people might no. find that distasteful to even not to even acknowledge that that, that has happened? No, because they don't have the right facts. When I had uh, the video, I had just spoken with Gabriel and he said his life is okay. But so, you posted it, you posted it yeah, in August. So yeah, you might have taken the video, yeah, but you posted it later. Yeah, you posted it yeah. almost a week after when it had been publicly, it was yeah, already public yeah. knowledge that he had died. Yeah, because we also have uh, sponsors and we also have people that is wondering how it went up there. And still, I don't think it's right that I am the medium to go out and say, uh, or bring the news about a dead uh, person. I think Kristin Harriller reveals something there about perception. Almost everyone on that mountain is selling a story, whether it's to their sponsors and partners, to their Instagram followers, 
to the viewers who will eventually watch their documentary, to their big-money clients ready for the next high-octane adventure, and to themselves. Nobody wants to look back and wonder if they got things right. Kristin Harriller is clear that her team could not have done anything differently. We did everything we could to save him that day. Since leaving K2, she's been at the centre of a media storm. She says she's received death threats and threats of violence. But dozens of other people made the same choice to push ahead while Mohammed Hassan was still alive. And those climbers didn't stop to help at all. I've spoken to several people with experience climbing K2 and other 8,000ers, including people who were on the mountain at the time, who say that there was nothing else that could have been done for Mohammed Hassan, that it's normal for teams to prioritise themselves and their safety, that Mohammed Hassan fell at the most dangerous part of the world's most dangerous mountain, and anyone who stopped in that area to help risked their own life. There has never been a successful helicopter rescue from that high on K2 before. But others, including people who were there, are emphatic that a rescue could have and should have been attempted. Ming Maji Sherpa is an expedition leader and rescue climber who was at K2 base camp that day. If they had uh, mobilised a good, good number of climbers to rescue Mohammed Hassan, I think it was it was easily possible on that day. Mm. If they had stopped their clients and send, send, mobilised their Sherpa manpower or Pakistan manpower to rescue Hassan, it was, it was possible that day. I am sure it was possible. It needed decisive action from professionals. The company should have been responsible. The company should have like stopped their all clients. Like the clients could climb in the next weather window. Even if a team had brought Mohammed Hassan further down the mountain, even if a helicopter could have landed in a snowstorm, they might never have had a chance of survival. But nobody tried, so it's impossible to know. Tragedies happen at 8,000 metres. The climber Sajid Sapara knows that better than anyone. Two years ago, his father, Ali Sadpara, Pakistan's most revered mountaineer, died on K2 during an attempted winter ascent. Sajid was there at the time and later climbed back up the mountain to find his father's body. And I bury my father there and it's the graveyard of my father. It's one of the beautiful mountains. For him, what happened on K2 this summer is about respect, or lack of it. It is not their responsibility to save someone yeah, from different teams, but uh, to jumping above his body and climbing above is somehow morally is uh, disrespected. This is not their responsibility to save someone if they didn't want yeah, but uh, to disrespecting the body, uh, jumping above someone's body is morally or as a humanity, as a human being, is no good, is wrong. The mountains are not entirely a wild west. Many do stop their summit climbs to help each other. Lucas is proof of that. Walking over a dying person is not a common thing. I'm sorry. Someone in trouble should be more important than your summit. But you have to be capable of helping. One expedition leader who was on K2 this year told me he'd never seen so many scared faces on a mountain before. He said it was almost funny. Many of the climbers I spoke to who walked past Mohammed Hassan said they simply didn't have the skills to act and they assumed someone else would do it. In August, an official report by local authorities into the death of Mohammed Hassan was published. 
it praised Gabriel Tarso for his efforts to help and blamed Mohammed Hassan's death on poor organisation and a failure to comply with existing regulations. The Pakistani company that hired him, Leila Peak, was banned from operating in the region for two years. Mohammed Hassan wasn't insured or listed on the company's permit documentation. Instead of providing him with kit, they gave him a small amount of money to buy his own. The report criticised, but did not discipline, the Sherpas involved in the rope-fixing team. And the Russian company Seven Summits Club, who contracted Leila Peak and who Mohammed Hassan worked with on the mountain, is mentioned only once, in passing. A leading figure involved in the making of the report told me he was deeply frustrated by its failure to hold the international companies to account. He said that the ultimate responsibility for a climber, to check that they have the right experience and equipment for the job that they are doing, lies with the expedition leader. He said, in this case, it was Seven Summits Club. And he criticised who he called the giants of the expedition industry commercialising the mountains and promoting record-breaking attempts to the detriment of safety and responsibility. We approached Seven Summits Club for this podcast, but they declined to comment. Seven Summit Treks and 8K Expeditions did not respond to our request for comment. In a statement, Kristen Harilla said that she and her team did everything in their power to help Mohammed Hassan without exposing anyone else's life or health, and that any claim she prioritised her own climb is untrue. She added that she has evidence, including videos, that tell the true story, which will come out later in full. We have asked to see this evidence. Basharat Hussain, a friend of Mohammed Hassan, described the behaviour of climbers who walked over him as lower than humanity. He said it was the most dehumanising event in his life, that it's not something that has happened before on the mountain, and he hopes it will not become more common in the future. Many more people I've spoken to have questioned whether a client or a Sherpa would have been treated the same way that Pakistani porters on the mountains are treated as second-class citizens. Murtaza Sadpara is recovering from his ordeal. I spoke to him on the phone. He's now in Spain for treatment for his frostbite. He says that Pakistani porters need better insurance. His didn't cover injury, only death, and he's scared about his future. Without his fingers, he's worried he won't work again. Sajid Sabpara, who is related to Murtaza, says that as the industry explodes, new Pakistani climbers and porters need better training. It's hard due to inexperience and loss of knowledge, uh, lack of knowledge. And uh, it's uh, somehow really bad. Yeah, people just go for money, mountains, and when situation came, they will be affected. Yeah. What do you think needs to change? The main thing is confidence. The first thing is confidence. We have we, we want to get confidence that we can do this. And other thing is knowledge, communication skills, trainings. Yeah, we want to be well trained like Europeans and like other people, climbers. The Pakistani company that hired Murtaza Sadpara did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Both Murtaza Sadpara and Mohammed Hassan were caught in the crosshairs of the competing forces that have exploded on K2. Money, glory, security, safety. 
Those forces have always existed, of course. But as interest in the 8,000ers increases and more and more people set their sights on the clouds, they're on steroids. And it's coming from all sides. From Pakistani companies and climbers desperate to prove themselves and meet demand, foreign companies sensing the opportunity for rapid expansion, freshly inspired clients determined to complete the records they've set out to break. This year, that dangerous new mix was exposed. It seems like no one is there. It seems like no one speaks about what happened in the mountain, how it stays in the mountain. That is a common sentence, but in the end, it's not like that. I do my best to change that <laughs> with more or less success, right? But I, it's my job to prevent that. And we have drones, we have cell phones, we have people speaking. So it's not a secret anymore. And uh, somehow the world is watching when you're on K2. The growing commercialization of the mountains and the increasing popularity of record-breaking attempts means that the world is watching and things go right. Eyes glued to picture-perfect Instagram stories and adrenaline-fueled documentaries, of which at least three were being made on K2 this summer. So the world is also now watching when things go wrong. Though on those occasions, the picture is never quite as clear. And it's not just K2. It's been a busy and deadly year across the 8,000ers. It was one of the most dangerous years in Everest's history. Yet still, more people keep climbing, keep pushing upwards, keep risking it all to stand on top of the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. You can listen to more of our podcasts today, early and ad-free, by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts. Or for the best Tortoise listening experience created by our journalists, download the Tortoise app. And as ever, if you enjoy what we do, please do leave a review. This episode was reported by me, Claudia Williams, and produced by Matt Russell. The editor was Jasper Corbett. The sound designer was Tom Birchall. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of The Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com.